we've given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! So excited to be back with y'all today. Uh, I was not here last weekend. Uh, I was, my wife and I were away celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary, which is just super, isn't that great? Yeah. Uh, kudos to her for putting up with me for 20 years. Just amazing. We got to go to New York City. I had never been. How many of y'all been to New York before? Just quick. Okay. Oh, like everybody. Okay, so anyway, you already know this, but let me tell you what I learned. Did you know New York, this blue, I mean, it was amazing. We rode the train into Penn Station. We came up right there on Broadway. It's incredible. We come out. Did you know that over 62 million people visit New York every year? 62 million people. They were all on the subway with me at one time. It was, it was incredible. It was like sardines. You know, they were just packed in there. Uh, There's just so much to love about New York. It was super exciting for me. Uh, just great food and, and culture. And in fact, you know, uh, it, we too many restaurants to even be able to eat at, right? Which is which is another reason to ride the subway because you're like right here. So even whatever you ate, you kind of get to sample just via smell whatever your neighbor had for lunch. I mean, just just kind of life in New York, you know. Uh, but one of the real highlights for me was going to the Lincoln Center. Uh, we got to see My Fair Lady at the Lincoln Center in just this beautiful theater. It was fantastic. And it was actually in the lobby of the theater that I, I had uh, this experience. Maybe you've had this kind of experience in New York. But I was there, and I'm always, you know, 62 million people. I'm trying to, I'm looking for my people, right? Where are my people? And then all of a sudden, I heard the telltale sign of my people. All the way from the other side of the lobby, I heard this phrase, well, bless her heart. I was like, my people! I just went, I just went running, you know. And, I, and she was from Greensboro. I'm like, I'm from Charlotte, my people. You know, it was, it was great. So, uh, yeah, even even in New York, we can find our fellow North Carolinians. But uh, it was a great time, super fun to be away. Um, but uh, Dean got us off to a great start, and uh, just love the strength of uh, a diversity of teachers and preachers here at Wesley. Just amazing. Even this summer, I think Caesar and and Nicole uh, Eunice coming and preaching with us, and Dean and. I'm just so thankful for that, thankful for you guys as a church. One of the things I learned in New York was really interesting. Uh, I spent a lot of time just walking, right, and just looking at people. What began to grow in me was this sense, this awareness that the people of New York, every person in New York is a person in search of a story. Every person is there in search of their story, the story that is going to give purpose and meaning and direction to their lives. And that's just true of all of us, isn't it? That, that in some way, we, we are all a people in search of a story. Uh, Yale sociology professor, uh, Dr. Gotch, Gotchall, I think is how you say it, actually, uh, has done some interesting research on this. He calls the human being the storytelling creature. There's just something about story that, that has the power to give meaning and direction and purpose to our lives. We are storytelling, story-seeking story-following creatures. We're all in search of our story. And the question, the question that we kind of then have to consider is, what story is it that we are following? What story is it that we are giving power to, to shape and form the direction of our lives? That's what I want to consider with you guys today. We are continuing our series, Primary. Primary is all about the three primary practices of the Christian faith. Christians throughout the centuries, Christians around the globe, would all agree that there are some basic practices that give shape and form to the life 
of a Christian. Last week, Dean talked about worship. Worship is a primary practice of the Christian life. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about prayer. What is prayer? What role does prayer play in the life of the Christian? And today, today I want to talk about the role of Scripture, the role that the story of the Bible plays in the life of a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you picked a great Sunday to come because we're going to talk about some some really fundamental things uh, about the Bible. Here's what uh, I know about the scriptures for many of us. Many of us have tried at one point or another to pick up the Bible on our own. The vast majority of us probably own a Bible. But maybe at some point in your life, you opened the Bible, you tried to read it on your own, only to end up frustrated or or discouraged or, or maybe just confused about this book that you've been told mattered, but you're not sure exactly how it affects your life or what it has to say to your life. I remember when I was a new Christian, I had uh, I did not grow up in the church, by the way. I knew nothing about the Bible or Jesus. And uh, I heard the gospel story about a God who came to earth, gave his life for me so I could have a relationship with him. And I said, sign me up. And I was all in. And my youth pastor at the time told me, Aaron, you know, the Bible is kind of like the manual for Christian living. It's, it's the manual that you can use when you need help knowing how to live. And he had a little acronym for this. He, he called it the B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Life Ends. I know it wasn't very good then either, was it? Uh, but but here, here's what was interesting. He, he used to tell me, look, you know, any, you know, anything. This is the manual for how you can live. And so I took him at his word because I was facing a very big problem that week. I was facing a lot of anxiety about asking a girl to the homecoming dance, right? So I did what any young Christian would do. I took out the Bible and I, I looked for where God told me how to ask a girl out to a dance, especially homecoming. And as hard as I looked, I could not find anything in this manual that told me how to ask a girl out, right? It just, it wasn't there. There were verses about being strong and courageous. There were stories about these other women named Bathsheba and Jezebel. There was also verses from this guy named Paul who said it was better to be single. I didn't know which of these verses to follow. In fact, I began to conclude that it must be the 11th commandment, thou shalt not homecoming. That just was kind of my conclusion about what the Bible said. But as I grew in faith and in relationship with God through worship and through prayer and through reading the scriptures, I began to realize that my youth pastor was only partly right. The Bible does have some instructions, but it also has a lot of other things like histories and genealogies and poetry, teachings from Jesus. There's even a section dedicated to romance and love for men. It's called the Song of Solomon, and it's PG-13. The ancient Jewish boys were not allowed to read it until they were 13 years old. Which, if that won't motivate you to read the scriptures, I don't know what will, right? You see, what I was beginning to learn was that though the scriptures contained some instructions, though they did have some things to say about doctrine, somehow these instructions might work differently than I had originally thought. What I was beginning to see was that the Bible was different than any other kind of book I had ever read. The Bible talks about its own role in the life of the Jesus follower in a number of places. Two of them are these. Psalm 119 says, Your word, God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my Something about the scriptures 
shows us our steps, lights our path. Paul picks up the same idea in his letter to his young mentor, Timothy. He writes this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that man, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We all know that the scriptures are important to the life of faith. And yet for many of us, when we try to access them on our own, we end up frustrated, discouraged, or confused. Well, that's what I want to talk with you about today. And I specifically want to talk about two things, because I think there are two issues that often are the obstacles, two issues that we kind of get, or two ideas that we get wrong that make it hard for us to understand what it is that we're actually Reading. The first thing I want to talk about today is the authority of the Bible. What do Christians mean when they say that the Bible is their authority? I want want to wrestle with that because we sometimes get that one wrong. The second thing I want to talk about is the nature of this book. What kind of book is the Bible? I'm indebted today to two authors. I commend both of them to you, uh, John Ortberg and N.T. Wright. They've both written extensively on this subject. So we're going to jump right in and, uh, and tackle. This is going to be a thinking sermon today. It's going to be a little bit more teaching than preaching. So we're, as my second grade teacher, Mrs. Cole, used to say, we're going to have to put on our thinking caps. So you put on your thinking caps, and we're going to jump right in. Authority of Scripture. What do Christians mean by that? And then what kind of story is the Bible? Those are two questions we're going to answer. Here we go. Topic number one, authority. Well, the Bible says the Bible says that all authority belongs to God. But did you know the Bible never claims to have all authority? You see, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when we talk about the authority of the Bible, it's shorthand for talking about the authority of God. When we say the Bible has authority, what we mean is that God uses the Bible to express his authority, his truth. The authority of the Old Testament in Jesus' day was recognized by the people of Israel, but Jesus recognized it as well. Listen to what he says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's that's the Old Testament. No, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's Jesus' view of the Old Testament. Somehow Jesus saw them as authoritative. Then we have the New Testament. There's this myth that sometimes goes around, maybe you've heard this, that somehow the books of the New Testament in the Bible were sort of uh, oh, arbitrarily chosen by the 4th century Emperor Augustine, or excuse me, uh, Constantine. Uh, but by the time we get to the 4th century, what we actually learn is that the books of the Bible, the books of the New Testament, were already circulating around the Roman Empire. They were widely recognized as having authority. You see, the early church believed that these writings, the writings of the apostles, could be traced back to Jesus' disciples, and that these writings were consistent with the known teachings of Jesus. And so here's what happened in the early church. And what we actually know to be true from archaeological evidence, as early as 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrections, Christians began to collect and copy and put together the writings of the apostles, Peter, James, John, folks who had actually walked with Jesus, 
right alongside the scriptures of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They combined them into these collections, and they circulated these collections around from church to church. And on Sundays, in times of worship, just like this, they would gather and they would open the scrolls because the vast majority of people could not read, but they could listen. And they would read from these Hebrew scriptures right alongside the writings of the apostles. And they recognized that there was something unique Something powerful about these writings. See, what the early church began to see was that God's Spirit whispered and spoke through these writings in a unique way that He did through no other writings. There was a kind of power. It was as if God Himself was speaking to them. The Apostle Paul describes this experience in his letter to Timothy when he says all scripture is God breathed, literally God inspired. There was something about God's own voice, God's own breath that helped speak through these ancient texts. Now, what's important to understand is that uh, it's not just that this is what the Bible is. We also need to understand what the Bible is is not. Well, excuse me, let me back up. Let me summarize that last part. In other words, the Bible, the Bible's authority, what do we mean by the Bible's authority? The Bible is authoritative because it has been uniquely inspired by God and can be traced to the apostles who walked with Jesus themselves. That's what we mean by the authority of Scripture. Now, it's important to understand not just what the Bible is, but what the Bible is not. I had a friend in high school named Tony Uh, Tony had a Bible. He never read it. Tony kept his Bible in the glove box. You ever met somebody like this? I was riding with Tony one day and I opened the glove box and I took it out and I said, Tony, what's this Bible for? He says, oh, I keep that in there to protect me from accidents and speeding tickets. I said, Tony, that's not how the Bible works. I mean, I appreciate that's not how the Bible authority works, right? The Bible is not some magic token. It's not some good luck charm. That's not what the Bible is. John Ortberg writes that a lot of people in our day tend to think of the Bible as kind of like a car owner's manual, right? When a warning light goes off on the dash, you turn to the the back, you look up that dash light, and it tells you, oh, go go to page 42, and you go there, and it tells you what the problem is, right? And a lot of people think that this is how the Bible is, that somehow, you know, when you have doubts, uh, I look up doubts, okay, page 32, I go to page 32, and it tells me... Or, you know, when, uh, what's the right view of the end times? Okay, page 72, and I turn there, okay. Or, or you know, uh, how do I fix my kids? Well, that's page 2 through 1,984. Um, have you ever noticed that that's not really how the Bible's arranged? It's not actually how the Bible works. It doesn't really function like a manual. See, when we pick up the Bible, when we start to read it for ourselves we are often surprised by what we find, what we discover. Yes, the Bible has some instructions. Yes, the Bible has some doctrine. But it is not mostly these things. The Bible is mostly a story. It is mostly a story about God and how God relates to his people. The Bible is God's story. He is the main character. By calling it story, we do not imply that it is fiction, but rather that it is has a beginning and an end, and it is headed somewhere. The great British theologian, 
N.T. Wright says that one of the most helpful ways to think about the Bible, one of the basic ways that can help us understand the story of the Bible, is to think of it as a play in five acts. And since I'm coming back from New York, the hub of all play and theater, uh, I thought this would be a great illustration for us today. The Bible is a story that can be broken down into five acts or five parts. And what I want to do today is I want to teach you these five parts because, here's the big idea, if we want to understand what the Bible is saying, we have to understand the part of the play we are reading. Let me say that again. If we want to understand what the Bible is saying, we have to understand the part of the play that we are reading. So we're going to take these each in turn. I'm going to give you a scripture example of that, and I'm going to see if I can unpack it for us. Act 1. Anyone want to guess what Act 1 is? Creation. You're right. See, you got it. Uh, First act is creation. Genesis 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first act of the Bible story tells us that there is a reason why all of this stuff exists. There's a reason all of it is here. And the reason is because God created it. And every time we experience beauty or joy or delight, we are reminded of this essential truth that God is a creator and that every good thing we have is a gift from him created by him. We were driving home from New York yesterday and uh, I was so struck. You know, New York, I was, I, I'm a city boy from L.A., but I think I've been de-cityfied. I'm not quite countryfied yet, but I've been at least de-cityfied. And uh, I got to New York, and I was shocked again by all the asphalt and pavement just everywhere, right? Very little greenery until you get to Central Park. So I was just all the asphalt pavement. And then so we're driving back, and we're coming down 81, and, and we come into that segment of the Blue Ridge Mountains. You know that segment of 81? Or as my family calls it, the Blue Ridges. But we're coming down 81, and, and I'm just captivated by this beauty again. And there was this one pass that we were driving through. And when we came out of the pass, the sun was setting over here. And I, I, I mean, I, I just lost my breath. My heart skipped a beat. Now, maybe it was because Maram was driving. But it was also just, just this experience of beauty in that moment that reminded me, ah, God created that. There is a creator. And that creation is good. That's the point of the first act of God's story. God created this. It was good. But unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. Act two in God's big story is something known as the fall. And though we see the effects of the fall throughout the whole of the Bible, we see it in particular. We see it acutely in Genesis chapter 3 through 13. The fall is when oppression and violence and injustice enter the world where Adam and Eve rebel against God, where relationships get messed up, they begin to fight, their marriage is soon on the rocks. One of their sons gets jealous of their bro- his brother, and he actually ends up killing him. And another man becomes a murderer and the first polygamist, and that's only chapters 3 and 4. It's like, it's like the Days of Our Lives soap opera, all condensed into 10 chapters right there. This part of God's story tells us that things on earth are not the way they are supposed to be. There's something broken. There's something wrong. But this part of the story also tells us something else. That the solution will not come simply with more education, more technology, more money, or more progress. Act 2 reminds us that the world is broken because of something called sin. Because of what has happened to the human heart. This is what we learn in Acts 2. 
Genesis 6-5 describes it this way. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. See, Act 2 leaves us with this question. There's this brokenness. There's this messed up There's no fix in sight. And the question is, how is God going to deal with this grief? How will God deal with the tragedy of the fall? Will he give up? Will he just throw in the towel and say, okay, that was a fun experiment? Will the story end in hopelessness? And Act 2 ends with that question. Act 3 begins with God's response. Act 3 is when God responds to the problem. He, he doesn't give up on the story. In fact, what we find is that God actually steps into the story to try and bring redemption and healing and hope. He picks a guy named Abram. He changes his name to Abraham. God tells Abraham he will be the father of many nations. And this is an essential part of the story. Because instead of God giving up, God has now entered into the story. And he's working towards a solution. He makes a promise to Abraham. He says, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation of many, many people. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So God starts with this one little group and he says, let me teach you. Let me show you who I really am. Let me demonstrate to you my loving kindness and my faithfulness and my mercy and my glory. And through this special relationship with the nation of Israel, God teaches his people what it means to worship him. What it means to follow him. What it means to be in relationship with him. Now all that sounds great, doesn't it? Except that this is the part of the Bible where most of us go sideways. Like we're usually pretty good. I don't know how many of y'all have ever tried this. Most of us have tried reading from the very beginning, which by the way, I do not recommend. I'll I'll make some comments about that later. But we pick up the Bible and think, well, it's a book. I'll I'll just start at Genesis. And we start reading like, whoa, this is pretty seedy. This is crazy. And we're like good with the story until we get to Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And then we start reading these commands and laws. And we're like, what? Like this just seems weird. Let let me give you an example of of one of these commands. Uh, This is from Leviticus 11. God says, of the animals that move about on the ground, these are unclean for you. In other words, these are the animals you're not allowed to eat. Listen to the list here. You're not allowed to eat the weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, I don't know what that is, and the chameleon. Did you know there were that many different kinds of lizards? And here's the thing, you can't eat them, right? Now, what is this about? This just seems like crazy talk. I know some of y'all are thinking, Aaron, if being a Christian means I cannot have barbecued gecko, I'm out of here. Like, I'm just, I'm done, right? So what's actually happening here? Well, see, again, to understand what the Bible is saying, we have to know what part of the play we are reading. And Act 3 is all about God establishing a relationship with his people, Israel. There are actually two kinds of laws that we see in Act 3. We see ritual and civil laws. These are laws about cleanliness and and kind of about worship and just kind of how to govern society. They're they're laws that were specific to God's people, like don't eat geckos. That was just kind of... And the, the point of ritual laws was to set Israel apart. They were to be different from the cultures around them. But there's another kind of law in Act Act 3 of the Bible, and that is the moral law. And we kind of know these, right? 
Don't kill, don't lie, don't steal. We know the moral laws. But there's also another kind of moral law that sometimes shows up in a hidden form. It's the principle of morality that we see in some of God's rules. Let me give you an example. Deuteronomy uh, says this, When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. All right? So I know y'all were all beating your olive trees this morning, right? We were out there just beating them with a stick. What is he talking about here? Beating your olive trees was how you harvested olives from your tree. So watch this. You beat the olive tree, and then the olives come down. But there are a couple olives still up on the tree. What do you do with those? This law says you leave them. Why? Because they, God wanted set aside for the poor who would come in behind you and glean them. Now, what does this have to do with us today? We don't have olive trees, do we? No. Well, mom, maybe some of y'all, some of y'all have goats too. This is crazy what we have in Denver. You maybe have olive trees. I don't know if they grow here. Uh, but here's the thing. The principle is still applied for us today. The principle here is that God is saying, look, don't use everything that you harvest. Don't use everything you earn only for yourself. But remember to set aside some for the needs of the poor in your community. Do you see the principle behind the law here? You see, this is how the law works in chapter 3. And if we don't realize the, the act that we're reading, we will not understand what the Bible is saying. But of course, the story doesn't stop there because no amount of moral laws could fix the problem. And so Jesus comes in Act 4 in the flesh. God comes and becomes a character on earth in his story. And what we discover in Act 4 is that everything in the story has been pointing to this moment. Jesus comes. He takes on flesh. He walks and breathes and teaches and loves and serves. Then he is killed. He is resurrected. And after his resurrection, there is this fascinating scene where he's walking along the road with two of his disciples, explaining to them what has been happening in the story. Luke captures it this way. He says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now the word all here is very important. The idea is not simply that Jesus talked about a few messianic predictions. Jesus explained to them that everything in the Old Testament, everything up until now in God's story, has been leading to this moment, to this point, to this climax. In other words, the entire story, Jesus says, is about him. Which brings us to Act 5, the church. See, what those two disciples learned on that special night when Jesus was walking with them. If you know this story, it's fascinating. Uh, Luke tells us that as Jesus was walking, explaining this to them, that their hearts were burning inside of them. What What a fascinating image. Something was changing. Something was happening. And what they were about to learn was that this story, they were about to receive the invitation of their life. They were about to be invited to become lead characters in God's story. For the very next thing that happens in the Bible is that Jesus ascends to the Father in heaven. He sends them his spirit, and he sends his followers out on a mission to the whole world to proclaim the good news of God's redemption and love for sinful humanity. These people, the ones who were sent to proclaim the gospel, loved 
cherished and studied the scriptures. They knew how to properly interpret Acts 1 through 4. They knew they were now living in the fifth act of God's play. A few years ago, a book came out. Uh, periodically, these kinds of books come out. I, I just love these books. I, I have a, uh, a sweet spot for them, I suppose. Uh, this one was called Living Biblically, One Man's Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. This was written by A.J. Jacobs. A.J. is not a Christian. He decided to just take all those crazy commandments from the third act of the play, like Don't Eat Geckos, and he decided to live by those as strictly as possible for an entire year in the city of New York. So A.J., you know, he, he dressed like Moses. He, he ate kosher. Uh, he, he grew his beard out, which meant he looked like every other New Yorker. And then, you know, he, he just went about trying to live life at, uh, as strictly as possible by these laws. And there was one funny law that he writes about where the Bible commands that those who do not observe the Sabbath be stoned. Now, the Sabbath was uh, one day a week set aside for rest. There were all kinds of work that was not allowed. So here's what A.J. did. I think this is hilarious. A.J. went to Central Park in New York City, right in Manhattan, and he gathered a handful of small pebbles. And then he would go around looking for somebody that he decided was breaking the Sabbath. I don't know how he decided that, but they're breaking the Sabbath. And he would sneak up behind them because he didn't want to get arrested. And he would start pelting them with little pebbles, right? Until they noticed and then he would turn and run away. Because he was trying to live by this law as literally as possible. Now we kind of chuckle at that. That seems kind of funny, right? But you see what A.J. was doing? A.J. was missing the point. He was living as if he was in Act 3 of God's story, failing to realize that we are in Act 5. Do you see what I'm getting at here? The whole of the Bible is our story, but we are a people who live in light of Jesus. We live in Act 5. The coming of Jesus changed everything. So the challenge for us, is what does it look like for us not just to pick up this and read ignorantly as if it's all the same? What does it look like for us to pick up and read recognizing what part of God's story we are reading from? That's the challenge. That's the invitation to become intelligent readers of Scripture. Well, fortunately, we are not left to our own devices on this. In Act 5, we have been given a wonderful gift to help us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent the same Spirit who inspired, remember Paul's language? The same Spirit who inspired the biblical writers. Jesus sent that same Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures to us. This is sometimes called the doctrine of illumination. So there are two important doctrines about the Bible. There's the doctrine of inspiration. God inspired the Scriptures. And there's the doctrine of illumination. The Holy Spirit illuminates the Scriptures to us. God inspired the Bible and he has sent his spirit to help us understand it. Which, if you stop to think about it, is quite remarkable. Here's what that means. That means for the Christian, and the Christian is anyone who has said, God, I want to surrender my will and life to you. I want your story to shape my story. That's what it means to be a Christian. For the Christian, the promise is that you have the Holy Spirit. Which means anytime you open this book, the Spirit is there to help you understand what God is saying. Did you know that? That's incredible to me. 
We aren't left to our own devices. God has sent us a helper. When you read the scriptures, when you study the scriptures, when you pray the scriptures, God's spirit is right there with you. And that is why this book, unlike any other book in the history of the world, has the power to shape, change, heal, and transform our lives. That's why every Sunday I stand here and preach from this book. I I could stand up here and preach from Winnie the Pooh. I mean, we all like Huffalump stories, right? I mean, Huffalump stories are great, but Huffalump stories do not have the power to change us. It is only the one true story of the gospel, God's story, that has the power to bring life. Which is why Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, where else are we going to go, man? You alone have the words of life. I got to witness the power of these scriptures firsthand just a couple weeks ago. It's just a real sacred moment for me. I got to come bedside to a woman who is in the last, well, the last days of her life. She doesn't know yet when she will pass, but it's coming soon. Uh, She's in hospice care. She says, Aaron, I I have no regrets. I, I know that I have been forgiven and redeemed by Jesus. I know where my story ends. It's safe in his hands. But it's still scary, and at times it's sad and it's hard to Imagine how her loved ones are going to grieve in her absence. And so we just sat there by her bedside. And she said, Aaron, would it be okay if we read some scripture together? Okay. It's like, I'm a pastor. This is what I do, right? So here we go. So I, I brought my Bible, this very Bible. And we, we just turned together to Psalm 23. I remember just sitting there with her as we read these words out loud. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And as we finished reading those words, we just sat there in this sacred silence because the Holy Spirit was there with us. And the power of those words, those true words, were shaping our hearts. We all live by some story. We all have some story that is leading us, guiding us, determining our fates question for you today is what story will you live by?